I'm always encouraged at how the Lord orchestrates a schedule and uh, a topic today, as you can see from the title, The Cost of Discipleship, and was heard from the streams this morning, and this just happens to be the next sandwich in our series. So we'll be continuing our series here in the Gospel of Mark this morning. This will be the fourth message in this series. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark with a particular focus on a prominent literary feature in the Gospel of Mark. And this unique literary feature has historically, and as you've heard me call it, uh, it's called a sandwich. Mark at various times throughout his Gospel uh, account desires to highlight portions of Jesus's life and ministry with a particular structure in his writing. And as we have seen already in the gospel uh, three times, Mark will start a narrative, interrupt it, and then finish that narrative, as we heard um, Dan read. Mark frames particular narratives throughout his gospel in such a way that the interrupting narrative becomes the lens by which the reader should uh, should read the narrative that is sandwiched between it. And we as the reader will do well to see these if we desire to understand the author's intent. And I mean that both with a capital A and a little a. So in Mark's first use of this literary tool, we saw Jesus define his family as those who do the will of God. What Mark wanted to show us was the invading nature of God's kingdom through Christ, the conquering nature of Christ's ministry, and also what it means to be a child of God. For Jesus, obedience to the will of God is what distinguishes us as a child of God. Obedience to God looks like allegiance to Jesus. And our adoption into God's family begins with our response to Jesus. God's kingdom is not divided. Christ is the strong man that has bound Satan And one's relationship to Christ, namely how you view Christ, determines your relationship to the Father. And then in Mark's second use of this tool, we saw the nature of God's word in the the parable of the sowers. It was in this narrative and teaching of Jesus that there were insiders and outsiders. The parables themselves are used to reveal this reality. Those on the inside hear God's word, accept it, and bear fruit. Those on the outside are not able to hear and see the truth of Christ, but those on the inside hear God's word, respond, and live obediently. And then the secret of the kingdom is given to those on the inside. Those on the inside are the true disciples, the true family members of Jesus. And Jesus himself is the key to understanding the word of God. Jesus is the one that opens our eyes to see the kingdom of God. And the word of God in flesh is the key to the kingdom. It is hidden to some, but it is revealed through Christ to his disciples. And then in Mark's third use of the sandwich, we saw Jesus' ability to heal in the midst of lost hope. 
And even more precisely, Jesus' cleanness invades and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There is no impurity to which Christ cannot make clean. This was seen with the woman who had, the, who had been healed from the flow of blood for 12 years and with the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, who she was raised from the dead. A saving faith in Jesus is what cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And when we cling to Christ for hope, there is nothing that Christ cannot overcome. As we saw with the woman who had the flow of blood, and then in chapter 7 with the Syrophoenician woman, the fringe of Christ and the crumbs of Christ are enough to bring full restoration to body and soul. The title of this morning's sermon is, in fact, the main point of this fourth sandwich in Mark. In verses 7 through 30 of Mark chapter 6, Mark desires us to see that the cost of allegiance to Christ, what the cost of allegiance to Christ will look like. Mark inserts the narrative of Jesus sending out his disciples on mission to preach the gospel, the story of John's death at the hands of Herod. So there'll be two parts to the sermon this morning. In the first part, I want to unpack the questions, how Jesus sent out the disciples, what the purpose for which he sent them was, and what was the result of their mission. So that'll be part one. The second part of the sermon will be to show the prophetic nature of this text as it relates to Jesus and his disciples. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that is before us. May we glean from it this morning. May we see the glories and the blessings of a life lived in full allegiance to Christ preaching the gospel, going out, being sent, sending well. Father, we desire the gospel to reach the nations. We think specifically this morning, too, of the streams who are with us, and they have been doing this at great cost, Lord, being pushed around a bit from location to location, but faithfully desiring to reach the Sean people for the gospel and many others along the way. We thank you for their faithfulness. May we, as a church body, um, better love and serve them and come alongside them in this mission. And may some from among us join them, join a call to the mission field. So be with us this morning as we unpack from Mark this cost of discipleship. May we accurately count, may we accurately count the cost of discipleship. May we look for daily ways to submit to your call we lift up your word now and the preaching of it in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. So let us answer the first question this morning of part one. How did Jesus send out the disciples? There are several things that contribute to the manner in which he sent out his disciples, but we must first notice that Jesus, that Jesus had this mission in mind when he first called each of them. Back in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, tell us this. Quote, he went up to the mountain and called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him. 
And he, being Jesus, appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The mission that Jesus was going to be sending them out on in our text was in his mind when he called them initially. This brings us to the first feature of how Jesus sent them out. Jesus sent out the disciples. I know that's obvious, but the implications are serious. The 12 disciples did not deploy on their own. They were sent out by Jesus. And just a quick point of application, we ought to be weary of self-appointed missionaries, self-appointed pastors, self-appointed teachers and preachers, those that have commissioned themselves and have no connection to the authority of the local church, they ought to be questioned. So it's obvious, Jesus is the one that sends out his disciples for mission. The second feature to the manner in which Jesus sent out the 12 was two by two. One one commentator commented on this as almost a relationship to Noah. I didn't quite see that, but here's some other observations that I think flow about what Jesus was doing with two by two. One commentary suggested this sort of method was possibly a normal rabbinical treatment or practice. But Deuteronomy 17.6 outlines the need for two or three witnesses to execute a judgment, and specifically in the context, a death judgment or punishment, and it was a punishment by death was not to be executed on the basis of just one witness. It seems as though going out two by two would, have been not, would not have been shocking to the 12. And it also seems that based on verse 11, there's a connection, verse 11 in our passage, that there is a connection between their preaching and judgment. Deuteronomy 17.6 prescribed the need for more than one witness for a judgment to be exacted. This command is also in the mind of Paul in 1 Timothy 5.19 in relation to elders, that the church should not admit, uh, admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus' disciples would be valid witnesses against those that reject them and the message of Christ in the judgment seat, at the judgment seat. So the third aspect... So Christ's authority sent out two by two. The third aspect to the way that Jesus sent out the 12 was with authority. By authority over what and to do what. According to verse 7, Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits and to call people to repentance. I see that in verse 12. Jesus gave his disciples authority over the spiritual oppression caused by unclean spirits and to proclaim the message of the gospel. And we know from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that Jesus came preaching the gospel of God and the invading nature of the kingdom of God into this earth, and it required repentance. We must notice the twofold nature to their ministry. It certainly involved releasing people from the physical and spiritual bondage to um, unclean spirits, but it also included a message of repentance. So point of application here, this is how we should minister to people. 
We ought to have a desire to meet their physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. To bring physical restoration to someone, but not to call them to repentance and to faith in Christ is, is not loving. In John 5, 14, this is precisely Jesus' concern too. After he heals a lame man, Jesus finds the man again and said, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen. What Jesus is saying is that to continue in sin would result in a worse condition than 38 years of lameness. Jesus' apostles had authority over the power of unclean spirits, but they also had authority to preach the gospel of repentance. It's another point of application. Their message was not their own. They were sent out with a message of repentance. Seth and I desire to preach nothing but the good news of Jesus because that is the only message we have authority to preach. The apostles preached the message they were entrusted with. Fourth feature to the manner in which Christ sent out his disciples. And that was with no extra resources. Christ sent out his apostles with little. We might even say Christ sent them out with nothing that would secure their own return or survival. Now, I do want to make a little comment here about the differences of this, um, of this ministry commission um, from, from the other synoptic gospels. So in our, in our text, in verses 8 through 9, there's a list of items in Mark that Jesus instructs the disciples not to take. They were not to take bread, bag, money, or a second tunic. In Luke's account, in Luke 9, 3, Jesus, on top of that list, does not allow for a staff, and in Matthew's account, does not allow for either sandals or a staff. That's Matthew 10.10. 10. So there are several suggestions for reconciling the apparent differences with the instructions, but given the nature of the list of these items in each account, the point of these instructions from Jesus were to highlight at least two things. The first... God would provide for their needs while they were on mission. And the second, the disciples with such limited resources could never attest to their survival on mission apart from God's provision. We must never forget these two things in our own commission as disciples. God will provide for our needs, and at no moment in the success of our mission should we point to our own resources as the means for our success? Jesus desired to show his ability to provide for his disciples on mission, no matter the conditions. Whether they were accepted or rejected, Paul himself testifies to this reality in Philippians 4.12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The point of Jesus' instructions to his disciples is that they would rely on Christ for their needs on mission. Disciples of Christ are content in all of their circumstances. 
They are content because they believe that God will provide everything that is needed to them in that moment and that God is sovereign over all the circumstances that can change and that he can change them as he pleases. The manner in which Jesus sent out the disciples reveals Jesus' authoritative word over both physical and spiritual realities that are at play in their mission and in ours. Listen to uh, how Jeremiah Burroughs describes contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me read that again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So we've covered four features that make up the manner in which Jesus sent out his disciples to answer the first question, how did Jesus send them out? They were sent out by Christ, two by two, with authority and without the physical means to, this, to sustain themselves on this mission. So the second question in part one was, what was the purpose of their ministry? To which we have already touched on briefly, but it was twofold. They were to exercise authority over the unclean spirits and to preach repentance. The purpose of their mission was to exercise the authority that Christ had given them over serious spiritual matters. These were, in fact, serious spiritual matters. According to verse 12 of Mark 6, the priority, in fact, is given to the preaching of repentance, which is followed by signs of casting out demons and healing the sick. The spiritual state of sin was emphasized through their preaching and the authority of this message and the truth of this message was revealed in the healings. The healings and the exorcisms were paired with the preaching of repentance. And we cannot miss this large transition in the Gospel of Mark. For the first six chapters, Jesus is the one preaching and healing, exercising his authority and forgiving sins. And it's here in our text that Jesus entrusts his message and allows his authority to be exercised by his disciples. And we won't spend time on this again, but if you remember from a previous sermon in Mark, I pointed out the messianic secret. At various times throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, we find Jesus silencing people from declaring to others who he is. I believe Mark 6 gives us a clue as to why Jesus silences the demons in Mark 1, 34, or chapter 3, verse 12. And as we've seen in our text already, Jesus is, Jesus is the one that grants authority to proclaim the gospel to whom he wishes. I would also like to add, it is, it is, the, context of, it is the content of that message that Jesus governs too. So Jesus exercises authority over the content of the message and those commissioned with the message. And this is precisely what discipleship is taking the message that was entrusted to us 
and entrusting it to others. It is not our gospel, but Christ's gospel. It is not by our authority, but it is by Christ's authority. This is how Paul talks to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As we'll see in just a few minutes, there is much discussion and uncertainty of who Jesus actually was. The demons knew it. The demons knew that Jesus was the Son of God, according to Mark chapter 1 and chapter 3. But Jesus exercised his authority over the message being preached. And who would bring his message to the nations? In other words, the preaching of the gospel and the ambassadors of the gospel are chosen by Jesus. Finally, as we close here on part one of this sermon, last question, what was the result of the mission? According to verse 13 and 30, demons were cast out, many who were sick were healed, and the apostles returned to Christ. Again, some very simple observations to this text, but they are not insignificant. Jesus purposefully limited their resources on this trip, yet they were sustained on their mission as they went house to house. We should also notice that Jesus' authority, as it was being exercised by the disciples, was effective. What Jesus had been doing, the disciples were able to do. Just as Jesus had exercised demons, healed many who were sick, and preached the Gospels, the disciples were also successful. The disciples, however, seem to forget whose power it is that casts out demons only three chapters later. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples were unable to heal a boy who had an unclean spirit. In, verses 30, in verse 39, uh, 29 of Mark chapter 9, Jesus explains to his disciples that this kind of unclean spirit can only be driven out by prayer. The theme of this section in Mark chapter 9 is faith and unbelief. And Jesus rebukes the disciples for their unbelief, which was the reason they were unable to cast out this unclean spirit. We must never forget that every ounce of our success is our pursuit, in our pursuit of making disciples is empowered by Christ. When we lose sight of Christ and neglect prayer, we should not be surprised when ministry is not successful. We must remember that our authority is derivative and it is Christ's power in us that grants success. This brings us to part two of the message which is the prophetic nature that this text has for discipleship. In verses 14 through 29, we see Mark insert the narrative of John the Baptist's death right into the middle of the disciples' successful ministry, uh, uh, missionary endeavor. We must ask, why does Mark put the story of John's death in the midst of a successful missionary story? And I'm going to argue that Mark wants to make the connection between persecution and discipleship.
Mark sandwiches this story into the disciples' missionary journey to pair together suffering for the sake of the gospel and that through the suffering, the gospel advances. I would like to make just a few observations about this narrative before unpacking from the rest of Mark this pairing of suffering and following Jesus. Number one, Jesus' name and power was clearly spreading throughout the region such that King Herod heard about Jesus. But again, we see Jesus compared to John the Baptist and Elijah. There is still some uncertainty at least in Herod's mind, over who Jesus is. We must first notice through King Herod's guilty, or we must also notice King Herod's guilty conscience coming to the surface. We know from verse 20 that Herod feared John because he was a righteous, because he was righteous and holy. And although being perplexed by him, Herod would listen to him and didn't put him to death. But we can see in verse 16 that Herod is convinced Jesus is John the Baptist whom he beheaded. We learn in verse 17 that John was put in prison by Herod for the sake of Herodias. Herodias was the wife of Herod's brother Philip, and he married her, which John had told Herod was not lawful for him to do. And I think Seth mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but John the Baptist had no problem holding up the word of God to Herod and exhorting him by it that it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20.21 are clear that Herod broke God's law by taking his brother's wife. And John was holding up the standard of God's law to the magistrate and called him to act according to God's law. John did not back down from his position, and it cost him imprisonment and eventually his life. We can see in verse 19 that Herodias had a grudge against John for exhorting and rebuking them for this adultery. Herod's house was certainly divided. Herod heard John got gladly, perplexed by him certainly, but heard him gladly. Herodias was simmering in her guilt and wanted to get rid of John. This word for grudge that she has is actually the same word in Luke chapter 11, verse 53, to describe the Pharisees' posture towards Jesus. The nature of this word is a hostile type of grudge. Herod is portrayed through this narrative as someone who is unassertive, spineless, and easily dominated or intimidated. Herodias is portrayed as a ruthless, conniving, manipulative, and dominating woman in this narrative. Quick side note, there wasn't a place for this in the sermon. For those who really like biblical theology, I'd encourage you to study Herodias alongside Jezebel in 1 Kings 18 and 19 and the prostitute in Revelation 17. And in Sunday school, when we get to Revelation, maybe we can tackle that. It is Herodias' daughter, likely Herod's niece, that dances for Herod and his guests on his birthday. And Herod vows to give Herodias' daughter whatever she, want, up, uh, whatever she wanted up to half of his kingdom. 
And after inquiring with her mom, the daughter asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. If, in fact, this dance was erotic, Herod would have also been guilty of Leviticus 18.17, which prohibits a man from uncovering the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. And then, along with his careless oath and his fear of man, he is pressed into yet another crime of killing an innocent man to maintain his integrity. What irony there is here. <laughs> In efforts to maintain his integrity, <laughs> his lack of integrity is on full display. As he has taken a wife that was not lawful for him to take, imprisoned a righteous and a holy man, made a rash vow to his stepdaughter and desired to keep his word to her instead of keeping God's law. Herodias took advantage of her husband's rash vow and his fear of man to deal with her grudge against John. Doesn't this just reveal how dominated Herodias was by her grudge? The king, it seems, would have, would have been inclined to give up anything after this dance, but she wanted John the Baptist dead, taking her revenge exercising her power, rejecting God's law, using her daughter, and using the king to do her bidding. Just an outright rejection of God and his messenger. So what does this have to do with the prophetic nature of this Mark and sandwich and the cost of discipleship? Listen to Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, this is Jesus, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. Listen to Mark 10, 29 through 31. Peter began to say to them, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then finally, in Mark chapter 10, verse 39, when James and John request to sit at Jesus' right and left hand, in glory, Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Three times in the book of Mark, Jesus predicts his death. But we are also shown the cost of discipleship. It's on display here in Mark 6, but as we just heard from Mark 8 and chapter 10 as well. In these, in these passages, whoever loses his life for the sake of Jesus 
and the gospel will save it. And his disciples will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism that Jesus himself was baptized. I'll say it this way. As goes Christ, so goes his disciples. And this principle is clearly seen in our passage and throughout the gospel of Mark. It is not, is not Herodias like the Pharisees, unable to execute their grudge against a holy and righteous man until they can convince the civil magistrate to use the sword to do their bidding? Is Herod not like Pilate, washing his hands of guilt when he says, I, ha I have to keep my words to the guests, even though he knew John was a man of God and should not be put to death? A righteous man suffering at the hand of the unrighteous. Mark inserts the death of John the Baptist in the middle of a successful missionary story of the disciples to show both the promised success of, of uh, gospel mission through the power and proclamation of the gospel, but also the cost of living a life devoted to the truth of God's word and faith in the work of Christ. Listen to Jesus' words in John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Now, not every Christian will be a martyr like John the Baptist was or the disciples were, but every Christian is to count the cost of discipleship. And according to church tradition, all the disciples except John, who was left for dead at the island of Patmos, was killed because of their faith. Listen to some of the traditions we have from church history about these disciples. Peter was forced to watch his wife's crucifixion and then was crucified himself, but per his request, desired to be it upside down as he did not feel worthy to die in the same way that his Lord died. The Apostle Andrew converted the wife of a Roman governor to Christ, and when she would not recant, the governor had Andrew put to death by crucifying him on an X-shaped cross. James was beheaded. Philip, the first of the disciples to suffer martyrdom, was by most accounts stoned to death in Asia Minor. Then Nathaniel, he was either tied up in a sack and drowned or crucified. He died on behalf of Christ. Then, Apost then the Apostle Matthew, according to earliest traditions, it suggested he was burned at the stake. Thomas was killed by being run through by a spear. Judas, the son of James, not Iscariot, is suggested to have been clubbed to death. We don't have any specific details on Simon the Zealot other than he was killed for preaching the gospel. James, son of Alphaeus, was either stoned, beaten to death, or crucified. We are all called to count the cost of discipleship. And when we confess that Jesus is Lord and cling to him as our hope for salvation, we are dying to ourselves and living to Christ. After confessing our allegiance to Christ and confessing our sins, we are baptized into his death and raised in new life that he has granted us through the waters of baptism. In baptism, we identify with Christ in his death, 
His death is our death, and His resurrection is our resurrection. Those that lose their lives for the sake of the gospel will find it. But those that desire to preserve their lives apart from God will lose it. This is the call of the gospel. When we confess our sins before God and trust Jesus as the only way to the Father, we receive forgiveness for our sins and the death that we deserve was experienced by Christ and through His resurrection we are promised eternal life. Let me close with some application. None of us right now, as far as I'm aware, are on trial before any civil magistrate on account of our faith with the threat of prison or death. But we do have missionaries in the field that accept that risk and desire many to come to Christ despite that risk. It was not too long ago that Canada put a pastor in prison for receive, uh, refusing to close his church doors by the order of the government. So what does the cost of discipleship look like for those of us not living in a context that preaching the gospel is going to cost us our freedom or lives? We are still called to die for the faith. What does that look like? Romans 8.13 If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The cost of discipleship is a daily practice of putting away the deeds of the body. Namely, those things that dishonor God and disobey his commands by the power of the Spirit and faith in the Son of God. The cost is saying no when things bid for affections over and above obedience and love for God. The cost of discipleship is choosing to live maybe in a home or a car or a car budget that allows you to be content in your current position at work and to give generously to those in need. The cost of discipleship says the budget is tight this month. But I'm going to share with those in need because I know that God will provide. The cost of discipleship looks like putting to death bitterness in our hearts. Maybe this is towards family members, neighbors, co-workers, or even a spouse. The cost of discipleship looks like picking up our business and our skills and planting them in a foreign context in order to call the nations to Christ. The cost of discipleship means looking at the things of this world and seeing them as rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. The cost of discipleship looks like potentially saying no to a promotion because it will take you away from the home and your ability to serve your family and the church. When we count the cost of discipleship, and live our lives with daily deaths to the desires of our flesh, not only is Christ living in us, but when physical death comes, we can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This passage in Mark reveals the authority we have been given in Christ to bring his gospel to the nations. 
the success this mission will have, the provisions we will receive on this mission, and our ultimate return to Christ after a life of faithfulness. But Mark also wants us not to be naive. Faithfulness to Christ may look like martyrdom. The ultimate cost of discipleship in this life may be physical death. But may we say as our lives are taken from us, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me pray. Father, there may be some of us that are called to give our lives on account of the gospel. Father, would you keep those strong and comforted in the hope and truth of the gospel, that it is a light, momentary affliction. And Father, for those of us that desire to send missionaries, if we are not going, may we be living in death to ourselves every day. May we die to ourselves, die to our passions, die to our desires. May we count nothing, everything in this world has nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. May the worth of Christ be proclaimed certainly in our lives, but may we also proclaim Christ with our words. Thank you for your word. May it be sowed in our hearts, and may we return 30, 60, and 100-fold. May we cling to Christ for hope. Bless the rest of our time here in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are dismissed.